I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, sociologist William I. Robinson, author of Global Police State, returns to discuss his latest book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic, which explores the crisis of global capitalism in the 21st century. Among the topics we'll be discussing are the 21st century surveillance society, the growing divide between the rich and the poor on a global scale, the transnational capitalist class, the digital revolution, the restructuring of the global economy, and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with William I. Robinson, author of Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy having on the show, uh, Professor William I. Robinson, author of the new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me back on the program. So, William, if you could, I, I know you had some things you wanted to say at the start of this, maybe to give an idea of uh, what this new book, Global Civil War, is about. And I know it's sort of a follow-up to your last book in some ways. Right, so a follow-up to, to the global police state that you interviewed me on in, in 2020. So yes, I would like to start with um, a couple of anecdotes. And you know, both of these have come out very recently. So they're after, I finished writing this book in, um, 
in early 2021. It's just coming out now. There were some supply side chain uh, delays at the printer. But um, I read just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of things that I want to share sort of as a, as a segue into, you know, into what drove me to, to research and to write this book. And the first is that there was a meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. This happened right before the pandemic. This was in, um, this would have been in early 2019, about a year before the pandemic hit. And there was a session in which the CEO of Pfizer, Albert uh, Bordla, uh, was being interviewed on this, you know, this, on the, in this session. And he explained in that he was discussing in that interview the latest technology breakthroughs, you know, in biotechnology. And he said that there had been developed by the pharmaceutical industry a pill, and I'm quoting actually here, with sensors that alert relevant authorities when this pill is digested. Uh, and he went on to say that, you know, in the actual quotes, this pill would it would it includes an ingestible sensor to digitally track whenever patients take their medication. Uh, and then this information that the medication had been taken would be digitally transmitted to unknown peoples and institutions who's ever controlling the technology. Now, you know, I read this and I'm not at all suggesting here because, you know, this is on the eve of the pandemic. I am absolutely not suggesting that um, any of these conspiracy theories that that um, the the um, COVID vaccines have little chips in them. That's that's nonsense. But but what this anecdote shows, one of these two anecdotes I want to mention, is the extent to which the new digital technologies that my book addresses and analyzes are fused together in such a way that they blur the lines between the physical, digital, and biological worlds, and they bring us to what some people have referred to as a new biopolitical regime in the context of the larger transformations that are taking place, digitally driven, in our world. And then, you know, I read that a couple of weeks ago, and then just the most recent issue of The Economist had another report. And this report said, and I want to read right from it. It said it's talking about how the new, the, these new digital uh, technologies, which I know we're going to get into in the in the interview, uh, they came online in a big way during the pandemic, as part of part of the pandemic, and they tremendously enhanced the power of the ruling groups to surveil. And so, millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world went into quarantine and did their work uh, digitally through computers in quarantine. And so here's the quote from this article in The Economist. They're reporting how the bosses, how capitalists, how employers were able to incredibly enhance their surveillance and control of their workforce by this new telework from home. And it says, both the scope and scale of corporate surveillance have ballooned during the pandemic. Employing sp employee spying software more than doubled between April 2019 and April 2020. Within two weeks of the first lockdown in March 2020, search queries for monitoring tools rose more than 18-fold. Surveillance software makers' sales jumped. At Times Doctor, which records videos or user screens or periodically snaps photos to ensure they are at their computer, they suddenly trebled in April 2020 compared with the previous year. Those at Desk Time, which tracks time spent on tasks, 
quadrupled. 60% of employee, employers now use this monitoring software for those working in front of their computers. And then it goes on to say, employers can follow every keystroke or mouse movement, gain access to webcams and microphones, scan emails for gossip or take screenshots of devices, often as with products such as FlexBuy, leaving the surveilled workers none the wiser. Some monitoring features are becoming available on widely used office software like Google Workspace, Microsoft Team, or Slack. And it goes on to say that one new technology now being introduced um, promises to gauge employees' concentration based on their facial expression. So I wanted to start with these two anecdotes. Again, you know, I say that um, these two things that I read came out after the book, just recently after the book has long since been written and is now just uh, available for, for purchase. But they really show the extent to which this digitalization is transforming the world, but it's also enhancing and transforming uh, a global police state. Um, so with, you know, with those two anecdotes, I want to make a very quick summary of what I found out doing the research and publishing this book. And one of the key themes of the whole book is the digital revolution, which has been going on now since the late 20th century, but it really took off in the last decade. And then a incredible expansion during and through the pandemic. And it is leading now to this massive new round of restructuring and transformation of global capitalism, turbocharged that transformation by the pandemic. Uh, and it has done three things that will jump into the interview I know that I want to highlight here. First, it's opened enormous new possibilities for transnational capital accumulation, that is for profit making, but what I refer to as the transnational capitalist class by the global corporations and financial conglomerates that control the global economy and on which we're all dependent. Secondly, this digital revolution has tremendously enhanced the ability of this system and those that rule it to exercise social control and surveillance and discipline over the global working population, the popular classes. That is, enhance the global police state. And those two anecdotes with which I started really bring that home. And third, and we know all of this, but not the extent of all of this, is that this digital, digital driven restructuring, this digital revolution underway, is accelerating what was already unprecedented global inequalities. It's expanding mass under and unemployment. It's expanding the ranks of surplus humanity. And um, it is um, sparking more and more conflict and deeper crisis. So I'll conclude you know, this opening um, statement that I wanted to share with you with this report was just released by Oxfam. Oxfam is this development agency based in the UK. They release once a year their report on the extent of global inequality. And their most recent one is headlines, New Billionaires Minted Every 26 Hours, as inequality contributes to the death of one person every four seconds. And then it tells us the world's 10 richest men, and, and I'm reading directly from the report, more than doubled their fortunes from 700 billion to $1.5 trillion at a rate of $15,000 per second or $1.3 billion a day during the first two years of the pandemic that has seen the income of 99% of humanity fall and over 160 million more people slip into poverty. And then it says, and I conclude with this, if those 10 men 
were to lose 99.999% of their wealth tomorrow, they would still be richer than 99% of all people on the planet. They now have six times more wealth than the poorest half of humanity. So, you know, these are some of the issues, and this is the overview of what, you know, what led me to to undertake this follow-up study to global police state, which is really focused on this digital revolution, crisis of global capitalism, and the global revolt, because of course the title is Global Civil War. So if you could, I wanna get into, uh, when we say the crisis of global capitalism, what do we mean by that? And could you explain how uh, capitalism is almost built on, on crisis in a lot of ways? Yes, but so, Capitalism for the last 500 years is crisis prone. In fact, crisis is not something external to capitalism. It's built into the very dynamics of the capitalist system. We are always in, in, in crisis. But we speak in, um, in, in political economy about three types of capitalist crisis. Uh, one is um, cyclical. We have recessions about every 10 years. It's called the business cycle in mainstream economics. We, we're not in a cyclical crisis. We're in something much deeper. Then we have this structural crisis, which is, we, I, I call it a structural crisis because the only way to resolve this crisis is to restructure the way the very system functions. And these structural crises we see about once every 40 to 50 years. So we had the first one, which was very carefully recorded from the late 1870s to the early 1890s. Then we had the the Great Depression of the 1930s, the next structural crisis. Then we had a structural crisis in the 1970s, and that was resolved by capital going global, by launching the neoliberal counter-revolution. Now it was resolved for capitalism, not for the mass of humanity. Now we enter into a new dramatic structural crisis, starting with the financial collapse of 2008, it's never been resolved, and now it intensifies from the pandemic and on. In fact, with the on the verge of another global financial collapse. So that's structural, and it's very serious. But the reason I've called it a crisis of humanity is that it's now more than structural. It's also a political crisis of state legitimacy and of capitalist hegemony. People the world over are up in rebellion, in mass rebellion. They don't consider the states as legitimate. I have some dramatic data that you might want to ask me about later on how the, the majority of the world's people, according to global polls, don't consider the system legitimate and want a complete change of the system. Real, real quick. Let me, add, let me add one other thing. Remember, it's also an ecological crisis. We're facing a collapse of the biosphere. And if you add in the threat of nuclear war and look what's going on in the Ukraine, really, we're talking about an existential crisis for humanity. So that's what I mean by crisis. Real quick, if we could, um, there were two things I want to touch upon. So uh, before the globalization of capitalism, how was uh, the how were the preceding crises dealt with? Because I think it's very interesting how uh, I think at one point we dealt with uh, the crises of capitalism uh, by actually, you know, giving a little bit more to workers at times. Exactly. Can we talk a little right. bit about that. Absolutely. So well, let's take the story back to the late 1800s. That was the first big structural crisis. That, that was the first Great Depression. In fact, we used to say the Great Depression was the late 1800s until the 1930s came around. And I was saying that each of these big structural crises involves a restructuring of the, of the system. And that restructuring is not simply arbitrary and it's not simply decided by elites. It's driven by how social and class forces struggle and, and face each other. It's driven by revolutions, it's driven by conflict and how these conflicts are resolved. So the structural crisis of the late 1800s for the system was resolved by a new wave of imperialism, colonialism, imperialism. By the, by the early 1900s now, you have 
all of Africa, the rest of Asia, what was still outside of Asia, the Middle East, all of that is colonized. There's this new round of imperialism. Vladimir Lenin wrote his famous book, Imperialism, the, the Latest Stage of Capitalism, uh, analyzing this crisis and how it was resolved for capital. Then we get the structural crisis of the 1930s, and you're absolutely right in what you said. You had mass socialist and communist movements. You had mass uprisings and, and, and um, new form union struggles, proletarian struggles, anti-colonial, revolutionary, third world struggles all around the world. And that forced on the system a new type of capitalism. And here, this is what you're referring to, what I call, have called in my work redistributive capitalism. You want to call it social welfare capitalism, social democratic capitalism, but the ruling groups, because of the intensity of class and social struggle around the world, the ruling groups were forced to engage in a bit of redistribution below to create social welfare systems and other benefits for not the whole world's population, but for significant portions of the world's population. It was a bit better in the post-World War II period of this golden age of capitalism. The problem with that mid 20th century slight improvement of the world's people is that it cut into capitalist profit making. And then the system went into a new structural crisis. It's time to 1973. That was the big recession and the next big structural crisis. And it's then when the ruling group said, well, we want to um, shatter this glowing, growing power of the working and popular classes from below. We want to break it and we, we want to restore profit-making and the power of capital. And so that's when they launched capitalist globalization and the neoliberal counter-revolution, which brings us to this new epic of the 1980s right up until date into this new structural crisis that we are in. And I will say that the ruling groups are hoping that they can resolve the structural dimension of the crisis by digital transformation, which way may, they hope, uh, bring a new wave of capitalist prosperity. But they do not know how to resolve the other dimension of the crisis, which is of capitalist hegemony and state legitimacy, which is why they are intensifying a global police state to contain the global rebellion. And, and real quick, I do want to note here, in a way with um, that sort of welfare capitalism, we're talking about sort of uh, Fordism, Keynesianism, and it wasn't necessarily... Uh, it's not like everyone benefited from that either, because I think we had a lot of the third world uh, that didn't really benefit from it. But now we're in this completely new situation where, uh, as you said, we have global capitalism and people are becoming extremely distrustful of it. And I think that, you know, more and more people globally, uh, you have some people being drawn towards uh, maybe the socialist left on one end, and then you have other people being drawn towards, I, I would say, you know, fascist or proto-fascist ideologies. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, that's a critical question. But before I jump into that, just a quick, uh, you did use the right term, Fortis Keynesian capitalism was the more technical term for that 20th century capitalism. And you mentioned that that not just people in the third world, some people, some sectors in the first world didn't either benefit. But, but I still want to point out that the, these mass struggles from the 1930s right through to the 1970s also broke out in the form of national liberation struggles and uh, uh, anti-colonial struggles, third world you know, revolutionary struggles. And, and that did tremendously scare the transnational elite, the growing ruling classes, and part of the global um, neoliberal counter-revolution was to rediscipline the masses in the third world. Right. With the help of third world's elites, which are now part of the, of the of the global ruling class. But going back to what you're pointing out, absolutely. What is 
has been taking place is that capitalist globalization is generating for the vast majority of humanity, independent of political sensibilities, generating incredible instability, incredible social insecurity, struggles for survival, uncertain futures. And in response, people rebel. But as you point out, People rebel based on their understanding of where the danger is coming from. And when you have leftist leadership, when you have socialist-oriented and progressive uh, leadership and ideologies floating around, people rebel in a way which challenges this system and which tries to bring about you know, a transformation in favor of working and poor people. But, uh, but you also have, as you so rightly pointed out, the threat of authoritarianism and fascism. And so members, sectors of the ruling group, which we call, you know, fascist and authoritarian sectors of the ruling group, are organizing a mass base. But the mass base that they are organizing, of course, they are whipping up racism and classical instances of scapegoating and also populist rhetoric, even though it's not backed by a popular project, by a, you know, by a working project in favor of the working class. And the message that they are putting out to some sectors uh, from below, some working class and poor sectors is your problem is not the system. Your problem are, for instance, the United States, blacks and immigrants uh, and so forth. Um, and all around the world, we see the rise of xenophobia, of right wing nationalism and so forth. But again, we want to say that why is there a mass social base that can be organized by this right wing project? It's because capitalist globalization has thrust the very social bases of these right-wing projects into instability, insecurity, and uncertain futures. So it's interesting to me, I'm thinking now, and I, I don't know that you cover this in the book, but uh, you know, in talking about this, I'm reminded of, um, I think it was in uh, 2020 that at, at the World Economic Forum, uh, Trump was there and it was interesting because Klaus Schwab uh, praised him for his inclusiveness and optimism, which I found that bizarre as a statement. But I think it shows that there are people within that sort of transnational capitalist class that, uh, you know, is represented by Davos in a lot of ways uh, that are willing to like sort of concede to these right wing elements. Absolutely, because you want to remember um, that these well, first, let me just say the transnational elite is divided at this point. They're, they're not, what they're not divided on is they want to salvage this crisis. They want to clamp down on the global revolt, keep the working, the masses of working classes around the world uh, in tight control. They're not divided on that. They're unified around that. They're divided on how to do that. Secondly, they're all unified in the sense that they want to enhance the power and profit-making capacities of transnational capital. Um, and so they're unified around that, but they don't know how to do those two things. And they're, they're rudderless. They don't know how to resolve um, this crisis. And so you get a whole lot of, uh, uh, of division among, um, among the, 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 the transnational elite. So, so let me go back to exactly what you're pointing out. It's that significant and growing sectors of the transnational elite are saying, well, we're going to have to turn to authoritarianism. We, we not, they're not speaking openly about fascism at this point, uh, but we're going to have to turn to, to enhancing this global police state, to authoritarianism, to greater control, to less democracy, to more censorship and more control uh, in order to keep a, a, a grip on this system before it spirals out of our control. So you're absolutely right that the appeal of, at its extremist fascism, 
but the appeal of authoritarian uh, forms of control and rule is becoming more and more general among major sectors of the transnational elite, absolutely, as this crisis spirals out of control. If we could as well, uh, maybe you could explain what we mean by the, the sort of transnational capitalist class or the transnational elite, because I, I think there are people that when they hear that term, they think, oh, is this a conspiracy thing? Is this some kind of like coded uh, right-wing speak, anti-Semitism. And I don't think we're referring to any of that. It's very different. I think we're referring to a very concrete and very real thing. Right, of, right, of course, yeah. Uh, so we put aside all of the right-wing conspiracy theories and unfortunately there's a little bit of language that we have to share with them because there are elites. Society is run by elites. That's nothing new, that's nothing controversial. Uh, and capitalist society has a ruling class which is the capitalist class. Uh, that is not controversial. That's not, that's not something that's, which we deny or which is uh, nothing to do with you know, right-wing con conspiracy theories. So you know, historically our analysis is that capitalist classes are organized in each, in each particular nation state. They un exercise undue influence over governments. Sometimes they outright control governments. In the United States, we see that with crystal clarity. We've been talking about this for a very long time. The, the, um, the, the capitalist class is able to purchase elections. They're able to, to exercise a lobby in, and, and, and almost dictate what are the policies of the, uh, 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 of the state. Um, so, so none of that is new or controversial, but what happened is as capitalist classes tried to regain control from the mass rebellions of the 1960s and 1970s and that type of more redistributive capitalism that we spoke about earlier, uh, they went global. And capitalists from different countries started merging with capitalists from other countries. They had they, their, 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 their national corporations merged into emerging transnational corporations. They started co-investing around the world. They created forums such as the World Economic Forum that we've already spoken about, but also the Atlantic Council, also the Trilateral Commission. And they created all of these organizations. Well, after World War II, they created the International Monetary Fund of the World Bank, but later on they created the World Trade Organization in the 1990s um, and, and others. They created the G20, first the G6 at G7, and then the G20, they created the European Union. So there's these both political and economic ways in which capitalist classes and elites have been integrating across borders and discussing the world situation as the world becomes more and more unified into the single global and, and economic system. And so that's what I mean by the transnational elite, the, the, the cream of the cream of the global elite operate globally. They don't think in terms of their in, in individual nation states, they, they think in terms of the whole uh, global system. This has been a topic that we've been covering for the last 30 years of globalization studies. It's really to say that there's this, you know, there's this new transnational lead and, and, and the leading edge of the capitalist groups have transnationalized. That's not new. So that's what I'm referring to here. And, and in that regard, I just want to, so is, is that sort of difference, how important is that difference? The fact that uh, they're not like an elite anymore that are tied to a nation state. They're, they're transnational. Is that what what does that mean in terms of dis, or in terms of, I guess, distinctions? What's the significance of that? Right. Well, I mean, that's a, a complex um, question. But first of all, it both the world's more. OK, let me put it like this. Um, the, we're currently in this massive new round of restructuring of global capitalism based on digitalization. And I hope we're able to get into some of that digital transformation. And there's some very dramatic data in the book and I'd like to share a little, uh, a little bit of it. Um, 
But the last round of restructuring and transformation started in the 1970s based on the first round of computer and information technology. And it allowed the ruling groups to put into place a globally integrated system of production, finance, and services. And what's happened over the last 40 years is that every country in the world has been integrated, sometimes violently, into this new globally integrated system of production, services, uh, finance, and uh, uh, and services. So we're in a, that's what we mean when we talk about the global economy, the new uh, global economy. And that global economy is controlled and driven by this new transnational capitalist class in distinction to earlier national economies and earlier national capitalist classes. So we're up against a new, a new type of, um, a, a new type of, 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 of capitalism here. So, so in that way, and, and we'll get into digital transformation after th th this, but in that way, you know, now the crisis has gone from being just nation states to being, this is a global crisis and there's really no easy way out of it uh, for anyone. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's precisely it, is that there are no longer any national solutions to the global crisis. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle at the level of the nation state. People still vote in, in, in national elections, there's no global elections, there's no global, global government. There, there are transnational institutions. We've mentioned some of the economic ones, the MF World Bank, the World Trade Organization, the G20, the, and, and, so, and, and so forth. And we've mentioned these transnational political institutions, especially the World Economic Forum, but there are many, many of, many of them. But there's no global government. So all of we struggle workers, social movements struggle at the level of the nation state, political processes unfold at the level of the nation state, but there's no national solution to the global crisis that we are in, um, which is why I know we'll get into this later in the interview, there is a global revolt underway. And one of the remarkable things about this global revolt, besides the fact that it is simply unprecedented, how it's breaking out uh, everywhere, and we can go into some discussion on that, but it's also a global revolt in which increasingly people are aware of each other's struggles and connected to each, each other's struggles. So both from below and from above, there is a new transnationalism, we could say. So with regards to this idea of the digital revolution and the digital transformation, let's uh, get into that a little bit more because what do we mean when we say the digital transformation and where is that heading? Uh, towards. I mean, it, it seems like we're getting new states of exception. And uh, I'm reminded of that line that you bring up in the book, uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, who was President Obama's chief of staff, said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and it does seem like the ruling class uh, does sort of exploit crises and create states of exception during those crises that then aren't, they're not reversed after the crisis is end. Absolutely. The, the um, COVID pandemic might have been a tragedy for the world's people. Uh, but it was a boom, a blessing in disguise for the ruling groups. But let's talk a little bit about this, this digitalization. So I mentioned that the first, the, the original introduction of computer information technology takes place in the 1980s and it allows for this new stage of capitalist globalization and this globally integrated system we've been discussing. But starting in the, in the 2000s and accelerating and then really taking off after the pandemic, there's this new generation of digital technologies, sometimes called fourth industrial revolution uh, technologies that we're all familiar with and which are profoundly transforming. We're just at the beginnings of this, Glo the global economy, society, and polity. This includes 
uh, artificial intelligence. It includes machine learning. And I'd love to get in some of the detail of how this is gonna be, be is transforming the planet and all of our lives. It includes big data, the collection, processing, and analysis of enormous amounts of data. So we have a datafication of global society with profound implications. We have the internet of things and blockchain. And the internet of things is important because what it does is it links together anything, any device which is digital, you know, anything at all that links them all together in a new way. We have automation and robotization, and that has taken off more than ever. We have nano and biotechnology bringing of obviously, you know, all the tech companies, but also big pharma, the medical industrial complex. And I started the interview with that quote that you now have medication that involves digital chips placed in the medication, right? Uh, I started with that quote. Um, you have 3D printing. We have um, quantum and cloud computing and 5G networks. And the reason that's important is this new, this new type of computation in the 5G network involves all of these new technologies um, to, to, um, to operate, but also to fuse with one another. We have autonomously driven land, air, and sea uh, vehicles. And so these new technologies all come together. They involve a fusion of into each other, which, as I mentioned earlier, blurs the line between physical, digital, and biological worlds. And here's the thing. These technologies could, under a very different social, economic, and political system, be fantastic for humanity. What we could do with these new technologies, we could, we could move beyond the drudgery of miserable manual labor. We could resolve the, 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 all of the medical problems of uh, humanity, it, you know, et cetera. But these technologies are under the control of the transnational capitalist class. And in the book, I analyze specifically what I refer to as a new block of capital, which brings together three big sectors of capital. First of all, the giant tech companies that are now at the very heart of the new global economy. And they experienced an unbelievable bloom. They were flourishing during and through the pandemic and because of the pandemic. And, and that includes the biomedical, the, the um, uh, biomedical industrial complex. Uh, secondly, is the global financial conglomerates. And I think in an earlier time that you interviewed me, I had already pointed out that according to the data we've collected, there are 17 global financial conglomerates that control $41 trillion, which is more than half of the entire global economy. And then the third sector of this new triangulated block of transnational capital is the military industrial complex, the global police state complex. And now it is enjoying a new boom as a result of the Ukraine war. Uh, and so these come together. It's sort of what I refer to in the book as a Silicon, Val um, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Pentagon nexus. And they are driving forward this, the cutting edge of this new digital transformation. And they are using it to incredibly increase their profit making, the opportunities for profit making, their power and their uh, control. And they were able to enhance all of this through and during the pandemic. Uh, if it's okay, JG, I would love to just share some data on the extent of this new digitalization because it's, it's shocking, you know, the actual data itself. So I actually, I actually wanted to get into that. Like, what are the, the specific examples we could give of how this, this new data and technology is being used? Sure. But let me first say how it's increased because it's, it's not, it, you know, it's not clear uh, until we look at this data. The so-called sharing economy it jumped from $14 billion in 2014. What we mean by the sharing economy is that economic activity and how human beings are integrated into it, right, through platforms. 
jumped from 14 billion in 2014 to 335 billion currently, and it's going to go into the trillions in the next few years. Now, that's extremely important before I even get to the other data, because that means one thing, it means that work becomes on-demand work. You go from stable employment, you have 40 hours a week, you go to some workplace, whether it's a factory, whether it's an office, and now that's being transformed. In a moment, I'll get into how robotization and automation is transforming even agriculture, much less industrial, you know, industrial production uh, and office work. But but more than that, the platform economy, which is when everyone goes to work at home, but also Uber drivers and, and so forth, um, now means you have on-demand work. You don't have steady employment and you have these new mechanisms of control, which I mentioned in that opening um, that opening anecdote in which bosses can literally monitor your facial expression to see how productive you are on your screen at home, working at home. But that's the sharing economy. Worldwide shipment of 3D printers jumped from 450,000 in 2016, it was just being introduced, to 7 million by the end of 2020. It's, expe it's expected to expand during the 2020s into hundreds of millions. The global value of e-commerce e jumped from 30 trillion in 2000, uh, reached 33 trillion in 2017. Now 30 trillion is um, more than a third of the whole global economy. By two, now listen to this, by 2019, global internet traffic was 66 times greater than 2005 and global internet protocol traffic. Now that's a proxy for data flows, how data is flowing around the world because I mentioned the datafication of global economy and society. It grew from, 100 gigagrams, uh, gigabytes per day in 1992, when it's first introduced, to more than 45,000 gigabytes per second in 2017. And it's expected to surpass 150 gigabytes per second in 2022. So we have this massive datafication. Uh, let me conclude this data with this. Only one quarter of the world's stored information was digitalized in 2013, one quarter. Now, only 2% of the world's information is not digitalized in 2021. And in 2019, there were close to 6 billion smartphones on the planet. 60% of the world's population was on the internet already digitally integrated in 2019. And that's going to be approaching 100% uh, in the next few years. And we need to remember with this data that we're only in the early days of the data-driven economy and society. Now you've asked about what the impacts of this are. I haven't gone into that yet. I don't know if you want to follow up or me follow up with that. No, I, I would like you to follow up with that, but it's interesting to me, and this ties into uh, what you referred to as, as global police state. It seems like in a lot of ways, what we're looking at in, in the future is, is an emergent, I mean, I don't want to use such an overdramatic term, but it's almost like we're um, facing almost a, a dig digital uh, panopticon, you know, like the, the prison where, uh, you know, the guards can see you, but you can't see the guards and you can be watched at any time. It seems like we're, we're heading towards this just, I mean, I think we're already in a surveillance society, but almost like a very accelerated surveillance society. And I, well, I think we could lead from mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. Well, well, first of all, it's not that we're almost in this global panopticon. We are in it. And again, that's not a conspiracy theory. You know, as far back as I think it was 2014, when Edward Snowden pointed out that the NSC has the ability to, and it is monitoring every single communication on the planet. That was revealed when Edward, Edwin you know, Snowden um, uh, 
share that information with the world. So that's not an exaggeration. It's anything but a, a conspiracy theory. But here's the point. As the whole world moves online, anything and everything about our activity in the world becomes digitalized and monitored by these new digital technologies. So yes, it is night, a nightmare state of surveillance. And the reason I started with that anecdote about Pfizer, and by the way, that I forgot to mention, um, Pfizer made $11 billion in profits before the pandemic. In 2021, it made $31 billion in profit, and it made over $80 billion in revenues, which is two-thirds of all the money spent in the United States at every single level on, on education. And the guy that announced at the World Economic Forum, the CEO, Albert Bola, that we have these new technologies to literally uh, digitalize medicine, um, made that year 25, uh, last year, $25 million in his personal income. But let me get back to uh, what we were talking about. The ability of this surveillance is now also biological. That's, you know, the point with the pandemic. We have a new biopolitical regime. Uh, well, what do we mean by that when we say a biopolitical regime? Okay, so we are smartphones are now monitoring our, ourselves. We're monitored. First of all, we carry around a smartphone. Everything we do is monitored. Now, we all got these vaccines, and this is not a conspiracy theory that the pandemic was deliberately imposed on the world or that we, you know, this is not an anti-vaxxer argument, there's all debate, nothing of the sort about that. But what, I mean, what we mean by this new biopolitical regime is that the ability of the ruling groups to surveil us, to control us, to you know, develop these systems of surveillance and control worldwide, and to discipline labor worldwide is not just, is now brought to a new realm in which it also involves our very uh, biology, that we get these vaccines, that our vaccines now go into track and trace uh, into our phones. And so even our bodies, there's new ways in which our bodies are, um, are surveilled. Now I can go into uh, a, lot, a lot more detail, but the point is that these new digital technologies, including the new um, biotechnologies, are now integrated into the system of global surveillance and control that was already in place. Um, you were asking me about the implications of this new digital technology, and I want to go into a bit of that because um, there's a vast expansion of automation which is underway. This is not a new theme, but what is new is that's accelerated, it got jump-started in a new way uh, by the pandemic. So already going into the pandemic, and I, you interviewed me in the earlier interview, we discussed some of this data that I uncovered in the, you know, in the Global Police State book, that already one third of humanity was surplus humanity. That is that locked out or just excluded from the global economy, having to survive at the margins in any way possible. And then 1.5 billion workers, that is people that have work, according to the International Labor Organization, have precarious employment, meaning that there's nothing stable. It could be part-time, temp work, contract work, outsourced work. If you work for Uber, you're considered a private interpreter and you're outsourced and have no security what, whatsoever. So all of this is accelerated by this new uh, technology. It's um, estimated that uh, each new robot introduced into a workplace results in the loss of three to 5.6 new jobs. One study during the pandemic indicated that 42% of pandemic layoffs would be permanent and that 
20% of all work would then be done in the world, would be done remotely uh, moving into the future. So I wanna mention something else here, that each time that capitalism has gone through these technological revolutions, there's been mass displacement, that's not new. So before the age of the automobile, of course, we had a, a transportation system based on horses. Right. And then there was a massive industry. People create, you know, raised and cared for horses. And then there were horseshoes and there were those that built the, the wagons that were drawn by horses, et cetera, et cetera. And then the automobile comes along. Millions of people are no longer doing that activity, but they're absorbed into the new industries, especially built around automobiles. That's the big early, you know, the big post-World War II uh, industry is automobiles. But this time around, it's different. The Apologists for neoliberalism say that, well, with this new automation and robotization and all of these technologies, we'll all get um, knowledge intensive, high paid, high skilled work. But that's not the case. Um, and one reason that's not the case is that we have the algorithmization of the global economy. That incredible, uh, these technologies combined with the incredible datafication that I mentioned earlier involves machine learning which includes pattern recognition and complex communication, meaning that these technologies also displace and replace uh, skilled labor. So there's two levels in which the global working class is facing either exclusion or on-demand labor, de-skilled, menial, new types of labor. So on the one hand, you have factories that are increasingly uh, automated, you have fast food, you have agriculture, construction, mining, warehouse, all of this is moving towards automation. Now this is not overnight. We still have um, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions at this point of warehouse workers and Amazon you know, and other warehouses around the world. But this is moving forward, looking into the, the, as we progress into the 2020s and beyond. I wanna tell an anecdote about the pandemic. There was a, a time in the midst of the pandemic in 2020 where um, crops were left to, were in danger of rotting in the fields in California, where, where I am. It's a global breadbasket. And also in Italy, which is a big breadbasket, not just for wine, but for fruits and vegetables for Europe. And why were they going to be rotting in the fields? Because of the pandemic, workers couldn't or wouldn't go into the fields. And also migrants. Migrants weren't brought in because of the pandemic. So um, the, the grape producers and the fruit and vegetable uh, growers in Italy, but also in California, accelerated the introduction of automatic pickers. So now you have automatic agriculture in which machines pick the grapes for the wine industry and in which machines pick strawberries and vegetables. And if I'm giving this example, because you would think this is the least area that would possibly be robotized and automated would be picking uh, you know, fruits and vegetables and agriculture in the fields. Uh, you have now have mining conglomerates around the world in which you still have millions of miners, but increasingly mining involves more machinery than human beings. So on the one hand, you have the manual labor, which it could be well be automated uh, in either out of existence or automated into much more precarious part-time temp, non-survivable work. But then you have the professional work. And here's where I was mentioning algorithms, machine learning, pattern recognition, complex communication. And increasingly what lawyers do, financial analysts, doctors, journalists, accountants, insurance underwriters, librarians, professors, I'm a professor, increasingly face being replaced or, um, or um, their labor degraded by these new technologies. So one of the things that happened during the pandemic is all of us professors and teachers went to teach online and not 
at the University of California where I teach, but in many universities, professors were forced to record their lectures and post their lectures. So already before the pandemic, seven out of every 10 classes were being taught by adjunct professors that had no stability, really had a PhD, but were getting um, poverty wages. But now you have a situation even where tenured professors are, are moving towards a situation where and you can imagine a situation where lectures are pre-recorded, they become the property of the, the university, and increasingly you have even, you know, the professorship is put into a situation where this new technology uh, downgrades or eliminates their, their, their labor. But I'll conclude with one other point here. When the, these technologies allow one for a massive expansion of home labor and the massive expansion of robotization, which means fewer people in the workplace. But think about what this does for class and social struggle. In an earlier era of industrialization, uh, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of workers were brought together in factories and later in offices. And that is where they developed their collective class consciousness and class struggle and unionization. But now we're being fragmented more than ever. We're thrown into these silos of working at our house. And so this undermines and fragments the ability of the working class to develop their consciousness and fight back collectively. Yeah, it's. I, I think you sum it up quite well at one point in, in the book where you say, you know, capitalists will use mass unemployment along with more widespread remote and precarious work arrangements as a lever to intensify exploitation of those with a job, to heighten discipline over the global working class, and to push surplus labor into greater marginality. In a way, that's what you're talking about there. Precisely. Exactly. The pandemic serves as a dry run for how digitalization is allowing these dominant groups to step, step up what we can more technically say is the restructuring of time and place to exercise greater control over the global working class. Absolutely. That is, that is what we are seeing. If you could as well, and I, I know you mentioned this uh, a few times in the book, but there's there's this idea of uh, Taylorism and, and Taylorist discipline and exploitation. And uh, also you mentioned the 996 work regime and how some of these things uh, could be implemented in the U.S. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So for listeners right not familiar with that, it was Frederick Taylor that first introduced this, um, uh, the, this incredible uh, well, so, what they call scientific management, which was the incredible increase in the control of management over workers and their literally their every movement in the heyday of the Industrial Revolution, late 1800s and throughout, you know, and throughout then the 1900s, last, last century. So now you have this new Taylorism, this new scientific management is, you know, can be completely unbelievably enhanced by the digital technologies. The 996 you mentioned, maybe some people are not familiar with that, is that uh, in China, workers have a 996 works schedule. They work, let's say, six days a week is the six. Um, nine, I forgot what the 996 is, but they work I, gosh, you you need to remind me. <laughs> but nine, oh, nine, uh, they, they work. Uh, I think um, it's like a, a nine a.m. till nine p.m. works. Yes, school, that's right. Six days a week. Yeah, nine p.m. six days a week. Exactly. Twelve hours a day, six days a week. Nine nine six. And of course, they're in rebellion there in, in China. The workers are in rebellion against nine nine six. But precisely when you have one third of humanity is locked out structurally unemployed. That means that those that, and more, and that numbers, those numbers are growing. That means that those that have employment, 
uh, are threatened with losing the jobs being replaced by those that don't have employment. So this is a form of discipline against those that do um, have employment. And then again, I want to mention that these new technologies allow for a fragmentation of the labor process and they allow what's called um, you know, on-demand labor. So Uber is one example of on-demand uh, labor, but it's much deeper than, uh, than that. Anyone that works on a platform increasingly, you, and increasingly when we move towards homework and when um, the, the whole global economy switched towards this platformization, it means that you through your computer sitting at home are hired to do a particular job at a particular moment. You are on demand. Of course, you have, you're considered self-employed, so you don't even have labor laws applying to you to defend your rights. Um, uh, you're played piecemeal. You might have five hours of work one week. You might have 60 hours of work another week, but you are on demand, meaning that there's no security whatsoever, that you're completely precariatized um, labor. And, and you also have this issue where well, there's two things I wanted to note. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think in August of 2021, it was actually officially deemed illegal uh, by the Supreme People's Court in China, uh, the, the 996 work regime. Now, whether that means that, I, I'm not sure that means uh, the 996 work regime doesn't exist in China still, but it's interesting that there's attempts to say, oh, this is really bad. It's it's actually you know basically a modern form of uh, slavery. Um, right. The other thing I wanted to note here was I, I think it's important what you said about remote work and precarious work because this does sort of keep workers from actually um, developing relationships with each other and developing a sense of class consciousness, and that actually ends up benefiting the ruling class. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the challenge for us below is how um, what we could call a digital proletariat is able to organize in in new ways in new ways. Um, you know, I would love to use that as a segue to talk a bit, a bit about the global revolt because the title of this book is Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. And, you know, we've been talking about how these new technology, digital technologies come along and they allow the ruling groups to enhance their profit-making uh, and their control over the global working and popular classes. But, the other side is fighting back. On the contrary, in many respects, the you know the ruling groups are responding to the initiative taken by the world's people. Um, this you know this global revolt has been going on since two thousand eight. You all remember you, we, we all remember how we were so inspired, um, and initially after the financial collapse of two thousand eight by the um, by. Uh, Occupy Wall Street, and that's a movement that then spread to many other places around the world by the Greek workers movement, um, by the Arab Spring. You know, many of these struggles suffered setbacks, but they didn't stop throughout the 2000s. If then, I could uh, real quick, mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, I, I think we even see it now, right? I mean, uh, you, you have people like Elon Musk running around, uh, you know, the, the owner of Tesla saying, you know, I'm becoming a, a Republican now because uh, the unions are controlling everything. And he, he's really mad that workers are organizing now. And I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, ruling class types that are very afraid of uh, workers beginning to come together, especially with things in the US like the Amazon labor union, uh, the Starbucks union wave. There is uh, a revolt happening, not, not just in the US, but also around the world. And I, I want listeners to keep that in mind as we talk about this. Exactly. Well, that revolt is a big theme of the book, right? There's, there's really three, three, four big themes of the book, I, which I, we've gone through a lot of it already, but one is the crisis of global capitalism. The second is 
the pandemic itself and how the ruling groups use that pandemic. The third is this digital transformation that we've been discussing, but the fourth big theme of the book is the global revolt, which brings us to that topic of, of, um, uh, of, you know, of, of global civil war. And absolutely the ruling groups are terrified about this mass revolt from below and they don't know how to, con how to control it. And it's not just um, uh, Elon Musk, it's all of these sociopathic billionaires are, are terrified. You know, the, the Scar Starbucks works, Starbucks workers here in the US are also organizing. And I forgot his name, the CEO of Starbucks, but he, you know, he had the nerve to go on, I think it was CNN. And he said, um, the workers are, you know, are acting in an authoritarian way. Um, they're acting barbaric against us. <laughs> I mean, it's, they literally inverted this real relationship of, you know, capitalist domination over workers. But let, let me go back to this crisis of global capitalism being also political. And um, in the United States, this is all in the book. This is the research I did for the book. In a, uh, a, a, um, uh, a poll carried out in the midst of the pandemic, 60% of millennials and 57% of Generation D said, Generation Z said that they supported, and this is the actual quote, a complete change of our economic system away from capitalism. Another poll in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, reported that a majority of people around the world, 56% of the global population, believe that capitalism is doing more harm than good. So this is a crisis of state legitimacy. It's a crisis of capitalist hegemony. Now let's go back to the eve of the pandemic. Fall of 2019 was what I call in the book a people's spring. We might not remember, but everywhere around the world there was a there were mass uprisings. Remember, two a million people took to the streets in Santiago de, de Chile. But these rebellions were there in Lebanon, in Iraq, in India, in France. Uh, the Yellow Vests in the United States, in Haiti, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Colombia, wherever you looked, this had been building up from 2017 to 2019, was this two-year period in which this buildup of this mass global revolt. So the pandemic comes along. It's a blessing for the ruling groups because they impose a lockdown and everyone has to leave the streets. But they're right back in the streets, literally in the midst of the pandemic. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace that's run by the Carnegie Foundation, they have what they call a global protest monitor. And they reported that from 2018 to 2020, and now I'm quoting, gonna quote them here, significant anti-government protests took place in 120 countries around the world involving under two, over 230 major actions that overthrew over 30 governments. And then, that's 2018, 2017, 18, 19. Now, in the midst of the pandemic in the United States, the first six months of the pandemic, there were 1,000 strikes of workers that ripped across the United States. George Floyd was murdered by the police in May, April, May of 2020, and 25 million people came out to the streets into the single largest uprising in the history of the United States. In India, first before the pandemic, 2019 going into early 2020, there was a general strike. It involved 150 million people. Now think about that. That's more of a population than most countries have in the entire world, the total population. That was at that time, the biggest single labor mobilization in the history of the world. And then in 2020, going into 2021, another general strike in India involving two 150 million people. You heard it right. 250 
million people. So these stories are repeated all over the world. This is the global revolt from below. And all of these struggles, of course, there's, they, they all have their different particular circumstances, but they all have a common denominator. It's an aggressive global capitalism that is in crisis, that's pushing to expand on the backs of masses who can take no more hardship and deprivation. So you have this radicalization taking place worldwide. Now, as you pointed out earlier, and we discussed, also, there is a right-wing revolt against global capitalism that global elites are using to mobilize authoritarian, even fascist projects, right? Um, and right-wing populist projects. Um, so, you know, this is the challenge of the global left to make sure that this global revolt doesn't go um, uh, the wrong way. But let me, um, I'm not gonna go into uh, what I discussed in the book because the final chapter is about this global revolt and about the challenges that it faces, right? But real real, real quick, it, it sounds like the global revolt is ultimately where that title comes from, global civil war, where we're in a scenario where it's sort of the transnational capitalist class versus the transnational, uh, I would guess, proletariat. In a nutshell, in simplified forms, absolutely. Those are the battle lines of this global war, the transnational capitalist class against the transnational proletariat. Now, of course, that's just a single phrase and there's incredible levels of complexity, right? To, you know, to, to, to all of that. But that is obviously the phrase global civil war is a metaphor because we're not literally seeing one army you know, the capitalists with their army and, and the, you know, the workers with their army. That's, that's not what obviously what I mean by global civil war. But what I mean is that the, the global capitalist system has moved into the period of, of, um, of uh, chaos and instability and upheaval. We're not going to leave that situation. It's only going to get worse. And these mass struggles from below against the ruling groups, against the system are only going to intensify. And increasingly, you know, we're in the age of global communications, instantaneous communications. The entire world is coming online. Increasingly, um, the, the, these, these uprisings and these conflicts around the world are acquiring the dimensions of a new type of 21st century way of thinking about a, a global civil war. Real quick, if I could, I just want to clarify something with uh, the portion of your book dealing with the pandemic. So I, I think you make a very um, nuanced uh, sort of critique of everything in this book where you're saying the, the emergency mobilization after the pandemic broke out was you know, necessary from a public health point of view, but it also ends up providing the conditions for a new wave of control uh, by you know, the, the sort of corporate and political agents of global capitalism. So in other words, it creates these new states of uh, exception that are imposed around the world to deal with the pandemic and probably in some ways rightfully so, but those state of exceptions don't ever end. And that becomes a, a huge exactly. problem because- mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So I know we don't have too much time, but I'd love to at least conclude by talking about, you know, the pandemic, because again, there's these four big themes. We've covered three of them, the, the global revolts, the digitalization and the, um, the crisis of global capitalism. But this is the other big um, theme is the, the, um, the, the, the pandemic. And the problem of talking about this is that because there are crazy right wing conspiracy theories that, you know, that, that, that then when we critique um, the official narrative on the pandemic, we're accused of being, you know, right wing conspiracy, and that's not at all where where we we want to go. Even those, and I, I'll let you finish here. But uh, even those right wing conspiracy theories, what they often do 
is, you know, I think there's legitimate criticisms to be made of things like uh, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. Absolutely, 100%. In relation to global uh, vaccine apartheid. But those actually get buried under the right-wing conspiracy theories. And yes, that is exactly the problem. And for that matter, the people that start buying into these right-wing conspiracy theories, they're identifying some real things. That's why I started with the, I don't want to get sidetracked. I really want to be able to conclude the interview with some comments, you know, on what I say in the book about the pandemic. But that's why I started with that anecdote. It's a right-wing conspiracy theory to say that we're being forced to, to get vaccines because inside the vaccine is a little chip. Okay. But we've already seen the technology exists to use medication to digitally, to enter digital chips into our body. I mean, that was the Pfizer CEO confirmed that. So even the right-wing conspiracy theories, they, they, are, they are, we don't want to follow them, but they are touching on something real going on. And they're being obviously manipulated by right-wingers. So let me just say this, that the ruling groups had been predicting, even wanting a pandemic to come along for a long time, and they put into place beforehand, and this is not a conspiracy theory, this is documented by them, and I'm going to read some dramatic quotes that are in the book, they put into place a response that they were ready to go with when a pandemic hit, and that response would guarantee two things. First, it would guarantee the response to the pandemic, that everything and anything would involve control by capital from above for incredible profit-making. And we saw unbelievable profit making and profiteering through the pandemic. That's why I mentioned that Pfizer's profits in 2000 jumped from 11 billion a year to 31 billion. And that's just one pharmaceutical corporation. Its revenue was two thirds of the entire spending on education in the United States at every single uh, level. And that's not all. I mean, in the book, I have all these examples of unbelievable profit making. So their response was pre planned. First of all, it would be profit making. And secondly, it would allow the ruling groups to heighten surveillance and control and the global police state, a state of exception, which is remaining in place even as the pandemic subsides. So they organized, we have the bill, and none of this is conspiracy because it's all documented by them themselves. The and you're world, talking about like, uh, for instance, like the report by the Rockefeller Foundation the scenarios, describes the, scenarios, the lockstep right. scenario. Yeah. Well, lockstep is just one. That was in fall of 2019. But they started these scenarios in the late 1990s. Again, I want to emphasize, not conspiracy theory, because they public publicized it and documented it. So they have these scenarios over 20 years. I just want to mention two of them, two of them. But these scenarios laid out how they would see a pandemic unfolding and how they would respond to it. So the so among these scenarios before the lockstep one was one in 2010. And this is all involves, who does it bring together? And again, I want to repeat over and over, this is all publicly documented by them themselves. Brings together, of course, the CDC and the FDA, other branches of the US government, including the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies. It brings together the World Health Organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. They're the ones that finance it. They provide big financing. and executives from the pharmaceutical industries, from the medical industrial complex. They come together for these scenarios. The official purpose of the scenarios, we're gonna map out how we respond if and when a pandemic hits. So this is the uh, scenario of 2010. I'm quoting, this is how they imagined things unfolding. Okay. They're, they're, they're games, it's like Pentagon has war games. They have these pandemic games. And here's the actual quote. Now this is not me, the quote. 
China's government was not the only one that took extreme measures to protect its citizens and risk from exposure. During the pandemic, national leaders around the world flexed their authority and imposed airtight rules and restrictions from the mandatory wearing of masks, face masks, to body temperature checks at the entries of communal spaces, like train stations and supermarkets, even after, after the pandemic faded. This more authoritarian control and outright oversight of citizens and their activities stuck and even intensified. In order to protect themselves from the spread of increasingly global, pro global problems, from pandemics and transnational terrorism to environmental crises and rising poverty, leaders around the world took a firmer grip on power. Now that was 10 years before the pandemic hit. Then they have what you're referring to as the lockstep scenario. They had more during the 2010s. But then they had a big one in September of 2019, just a few months before the pandemic was declared. And this one, again, bringing together pharmaceutical executives, government officials, including not just the FDA and the National Institute of Health, but from the Pentagon and the CIA. There, here's what they recommended. This ended, lockstep scenario ended with this actual recommendation, again, in quoting. Governments international organizations and businesses should plan for how essential corporate capabilities will be utilized during a large-scale pandemic. Governments should partner with private media corporations to develop the ability to flood media with fast, accurate, and consistent information. Trusted, influential private sector employees, employers should create capacity to readily and reliably augment public messaging manage rumors and misinformation and amplify credible information to support emergency public communications. Media companies should commit to ensuring that authoritative measures are prioritized and that false messages are suppressed, including through the use of technology. So the bottom line here is that the global health emergency facilitated both a massive transfer of wealth from the rich to to the rich and the transnational capitalist class. We mentioned that earlier, we quoted from the Oxfam report, but it also allowed them to heighten surveillance and control, control through the global police state and to accelerate this restructuring. And now I wanna conclude, we, we could not end this interview without me having to critique the left here for a minute because what the ruling groups are saying now is that the censorship, which they said there's misinformation and disinformation, so the social media platforms, the media, it's all censored. What's official information is simply what the capitalist state says is official information, says is correct. And what anyone, when anyone deviates from the official narrative, that's called misinformation. But the left has played along supporting censorship. If we are supposed to debate the evidence, look at the different contrasting evidence, see which is correct and which is not. That is how science has functioned for hundreds of years when, when modern science came around. And now we're having censorship that sectors of the left are actually supporting rather than open debate on the information and evidence available uh, to us. So yes, we're moving into a permanent state of exception now. And this is why I said the biopolitical regime because the new dimension of it, involves now this biopolitics. Real quick, and then I'll, I'll let you go because I know we went over. Um, I, I understand what you're saying there, but I, I just want to play devil's advocate here because uh, there will be people that say, well, how do we deal with uh, the problem of, of misinformation, disinformation then? So for instance, uh, I mean, we just had a congressman in Arizona um, boosting this already debunked claim that the uh, Uvalde shooter was uh, transgender. And we, we know for a fact that that was misinformation disinformation a hoax. So how do we deal with the issue of misinformation and disinformation without going towards uh, a system of 
censorship where, you know, the left will be suppressed as well. Right. But the first thing here is that who is deciding what's misinterpreted? The question is very important. Okay. I don't want to downplay the significance of that question. How we were, exist now in a world in which anything, anybody can put anything up on the internet and it reverberates all around the world. And some of it is absolutely absurd nonsense. How do we sift through that? That's a challenge for the world's people. But that is very, very different to say, how do we, you know, stand up to that challenge of how do we get actual real information about the world rather than simply what anyone declares is the truth being right, being the truth. And we've been debating that for a long time since before the pandemic. I don't have the solution to that. But that's something totally different than saying the capitalist state. Okay, let, let me, I want to be, you know, a little controversial here, but I want to emphasize this has nothing to do with the right wing conspiracy, conspiracy theories, that the, the capitalist, um, the FDA and the CDC, this is not new. The Pentagon is controlled by the military industrial complex. We know that. We know that the US, um, uh, that, that the, the um, United States, what is it? Um, Agricultural Agency, I forgot, US, USDA, US Department of Agriculture is controlled by big agribusiness, by Monsanto and Cargill, et cetera. We also know way before the pandemic that the CDC and the FDA are controlled by the big pharmaceutical corporations. But we're being told that the correct information is anything that the pharmaceutical corporations say. What Pfizer said is correct, is, is not misinformation, but correct. And then what is repeated by the FDA, by the capitalist state is correct. And what anyone else says is simply misinformation. We're not being told, if you get a piece of information, let's look at the evidence. And the evidence will determine what's mis and disinformation and what is correct information. We're being sold the official narrative by the capitalist state behind them, the pharmaceutical corporations, is correct and anything else is misinformation. And when we, I, there's no time now, the interview is over, but, but it's just about over. But I have been studying, started with this book and continue to study all of the scientific information. And a significant portion of scientific information is being leveled as misinformation, misinformation, because it will undermine profit making. Now, what do I mean by that? The objective of the pharmaceutical corporations of this of that new block of capital is not to harm the world's people. The objective is to expand global vaccine markets because they are wildly profitable. So any response, any healthy response that doesn't involve expanding vaccine markets is labeled as misinformation. So I'll give one example and I know we must end the interview. So it's very important that people who are in a vulnerable state of health get the, the, um, the vaccine. No, you know, no one is, is denying that. But it is also 100% true, even the CDC and the FDA doesn't deny it, that natural immunity means that if you have gotten COVID, before you got the vaccine, your body has already produced antibodies and those antibodies are more robust and they will last for a very long time longer than the vaccines. But if you mention that you don't need the vaccine if you had COVID and have that antibodies, you're labeled as mis and disinformation and as dangerous to public health. Why? Not because they want, you know, not because of any other reason except that if all 8 billion people on the world, even those that have natural immunity, get the vaccine, you have a massive amount of profit. So it's always been the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, these scenarios, the goal has always been Matt, create vaccine markets worldwide and expand them. So any response to the pandemic, which is not patented vaccines, which are wildly profitable, is labeled mis or disinformation. 
So I know that this is a can of worms because we don't have time to thresh it all out. But really, you know, the bottom line here is we don't want to entrust sifting through evidence and science to what corporations tell us, right? Uh, that's all I can say to, you know, to end the interview. We're, we're out of time. Well, I appreciate the time you've given us and going a little bit over. William I. Robinson, author of The Global Civil War. How can my listeners keep up with your work? And also, how can they uh, purchase the book? I would assume uh, they should go to their favorite independent bookstore. Absolutely. You can um, purchase it directly from PM Press online. You can go to the PM Press's website, of course, you and you on your independent bookstores. That's the best way. Of course, you can get it on Amazon if that's the only way you have to get it. Uh, it's just out now. It says on Amazon that it will be released on, a, on a June 15, but it's now being sent out. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with William I. Robinson. And you'll check out his books, Global Police State and his latest, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. This month, we're starting a new Patreon-exclusive series with C. Derek Varn. That'll be a monthly series with friend of the show and one of my longtime colleagues, C. Derek Varn, in which we'll discuss current events and anything else that we see as important to the moment we're living through. So if you are interested in that, Join patreon.com slash parallaxviews at the $5 tier or above. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that. Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.